For the week of July 2nd, 2013, this is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. Hello and welcome. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor at Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C. And I have the pleasure of being joined by my two co-hosts. We have the eternally optimistic Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solutions, who's here in D.C. as well. Catherine, how are you? Just great. You know, I'm just happy to be here, Stephen. <laughs> we always love having you on. And I'm also joined by the always opinionated and sometimes curmudgeonly Jigger Shah, who's back in New York this week. Jigger, how are you feeling today? Signed up for duty, sir. <laughs> and we have some microphone issues, so uh, you'll notice the quality difference on Jigger's side, but we're all here together and we're going to have a good conversation. Uh, so let's converse. We've got a lineup of three stories to dissect this week, as usual. First up, a little game of under-over. Once again, the International Energy Agency has revised its projections for clean energy growth upward. But is it cause enough to celebrate? Then... Trick or trade? The U.S. government has finally stepped into the international corporate theft case between Massachusetts-based AMSC and the politically connected Chinese wind company Sinovel. We'll look at what impact this fascinating and frustrating tale will have on cleantech trade. And finally, Republican backlash in an Obama rehash. We'll look at the varied reactions to the Obama climate plan this week, including from the coal industry, which could actually see a boost of new investment. Okay, to our top story. The International Energy Agency has revised its medium-term report on renewable energy, and the projections for 2016 have been revised upward again, with renewable electricity looking like it'll surpass natural gas in three years and double nuclear generation. Uh, Jigger, you're always harping on folks for downplaying renewables. What is your take on this latest analysis from IEA? Are you surprised? Are you ambivalent? What do you think? Well, I think the first thing that's fantastic is that that we actually have an institution like the International Energy Agency on our side, right? So for a long time, it was Eric Martineau's work at, at REN21 and Bloomberg New Energy Finance, but all folks who could be argued are on our side, whereas the IEA is supposed to be this independent body that was set up in the um, wake of the, um, the era oil crisis. And only recently, I think, has their data caught up with the reality of what's happening in the world. So I feel so much better that you've got this independent agency making the case for us. Yeah, and with that said, the IEA has always been, has always issued strong calls on the need to develop low-carbon technologies and address climate change, but their projections have just been much more conservative than what more progressive organizations who are advocating renewables have found. Well, that's that's right. And, and I think and Catherine obviously should chime in here. But I think, you know, that when you talk to congressmen and senators and others, um, they're really not going to use our data. They want to use Energy Information Administration data. They want to use IEA data. So this really gives us a leg up in those arguments. Catherine, how about your take? Are you at all surprised by this? No. And what's hopeful, of course, I'm always looking for that, is that the emerging markets um, more than compensate for any kind of volatility we're seeing in the in the U.S. and Europe. And, you know, part of our issue is that we're 
our policy is so uncertain. Um, we, we just don't have good long-term renewable energy policy. It's just so much on a year, you know, waxing and waning year to year. Um, but if you look at the market potential in South America and Africa and Asia and Australia, I mean, the trajectory is upwards. And so in my mind, that's going to actually put a lot more pressure on our innovators uh, and our manufacturers to step up. What's interesting is that the IEA points out that nearly 60% of uh, expansion in renewable energy, in renewable electricity, will come from non-OECD countries. So a remarkable expansion in countries like China and India, uh, that's not much of a surprise. But, you know, 40% of that expansion is going to come from China alone. So uh, a massive increase outside of OECD countries. And just to give our listeners some perspective on previous IEA projections and other projections from international bodies, uh, in fact, Eric Martineau, who you mentioned, Jigger, pointed out that in 2000, IEA projected 34 gigawatts of wind to be developed worldwide by 2010. And of course, the industry achieved 200 gigawatts by 2010. Um, it also predicted renewable electricity would hit 4% of generation by 2030, uh, and that was achieved by 2011. And uh, the World Bank projected 500 megawatts of PV in China by 2020, and of course in 2011 we saw 3 gigawatts installed. So the question is, uh, while the IEA continues to revise its projections upward, are they still too conservative? What do you think about that? Well, I obviously think they're too conservative all the time. I'm the ultimate bull on renewable energy. I, you know, I think the reason they're conservative, though, I think bears some um, discussion because I, I think they're conservative because fundamentally the vast majority of prognosticators are still shocked that we're actually cost effective. The reason why they're so conservative is that they think that our subsidy regimes are based on the good-hearted nature of governments when they don't acknowledge that coal, everything is subsidized. I mean, anything that's rate-based into um, into a uh, electricity grid. I mean, look at Georgia. Georgia Power raised rates again, 7.1% this last week. You're talking about a nuclear plant that won't go away down there. They're going to end up raising rates 30% by the time they're done just to pay for that nuclear plant. That's a subsidy. Yeah, and I think part of what we have in, in the U.S. is that the utilities have traditionally been really conservative, so that drives a lot of it. They're super low risk, and as renewables begin to really proliferate and and prove out the technical and operational you know lack of risk you know that 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 they work and and they can be deployed um then then you're starting to get a much higher comfort level and i think it's going to the utilities as their business models begin to change you're going to see a lot more acceptance and deploying of renewables uh, what's fascinating about this latest analysis is the is that the IEA is now pointing out that one of the biggest barriers in front of renewables isn't necessarily cost anymore. It's that they're getting to such high penetrations in areas of Europe that they're running into to potential conflicts with utilities and integration challenges. So we've now reached this new level of penetration where we're not talking about cost and not necessarily talking about policy as much, but the physical grid integration issues as we see massive amounts of penetration. So I think that's a notable shift. 
Yeah, and just to be clear on that, uh, there's a difference of opinion here, Stephen. I mean, like I don't believe, and none of my friends in Germany believe that there's a technical problem integrating this renewable energy. It's massively different than what the grid operators have done for the rest for the long time of, of their career. But 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 nobody actually thinks that it's impossible to do. The big challenge with Germany right now is the financial integration because the renewable energy industry is just crushing the margins of everyone who's selling wholesale power in Germany. Wholesale power hit 2.8 cents a kilowatt hour, which is less than the wholesale power price in France, which we know is nuclear heavy. So help me understand that here. Flesh that out. What are the differences between what needs to be done on the financial side versus what needs to be done on the technical side on integration? So the grid operators, not only in Germany, but also in Texas, believe strongly that there needs to be this overabundance of natural gas power or coal power plants that sit there idling or not being fully utilized just in case the wind goes down and the solar goes away. And what you're finding is, is that you can actually load level the grid using demand response and load control. But what happens is, is for every hour that the owners of the coal plant and natural gas plants thought they were going to run and didn't run, that's money that they didn't make. And so now a lot of the coal plants and the natural gas plants are thinking, we should just shut down as opposed to sit, sit here not being utilized, not getting paid enough to sit around. So what is the solution proposed in Germany, for example, for uh, these plants that are sitting around idle? Well, they're going to go to a U.S.-style um, payment mechanism, right? They want to go back to a capacity market where, and Texas is the same. So Texas dropped their capacity payments. And so now they're going to have to pay a subsidy basically to the coal industry and the natural gas industry to keep the plants um, up and maintained just in case they need them as backup. And I think as Catherine solutions and other solutions um, become more accepted, as a, as a more cost-effective way of providing that level of grid stability, we're going to actually end up letting those plants be shut down permanently. But the situation is clearly not the same on the transportation side and on the heat side. And this IEA report points out that you know biofuels output is only going to reach about 4% of global oil demand in the next five years, that uh, you know our portion of final energy consumption for uh, renewable heat is only going to be about 10%. And then the IEA also issued a report uh, last month showing that, in general, the pace of energy efficiency, smart grid implementation, transportation alternatives were not catching up to the increase in carbon intensity uh, among major industrial powers and, and growing countries. And so the the carbon emissions are outpacing the progress that we see in these other sectors that I just outlined. We're talking about these really positive stories in renewable electricity, but when looking at the bigger picture, it doesn't look nearly as good. I think that the fundamental change that occurred in the, the, the electricity marketplace is this power purchase agreement and the ability for the power purchase agreement to be used in lieu of the electric utility company or somebody like that guaranteeing you payments. That same model can be used in the fuel space as well as the heat space. So in fact, Skyline Innovations, for instance, is doing a BTU contract with George Washington University. And you can do the same thing with a biofuels contract where a buyer of biofuels can go out 
um, into the future and sign, let's say, a five-year or a 10-year fixed-price contract. That isn't traditionally the way it's been done. And because of that, um, those technologies have had a very slow uptake in terms of building out the capacity. Um, but that's going to change radically, in my opinion, once the financial innovation models of the renewable electricity sector move over to the um, technology innovations of the renewable fuel sector. So, Catherine, what do you see when you look at this total picture? The IEA paints a somewhat positive picture in the electricity sector, but when you look at the entire context, it's still somewhat dire. Are you still positive when you when you look at that entire picture? Yeah, I think we need to look to um, the the public actually needs to needs to push. And I think they're going to start pushing. They're going to start pushing our policymakers. And I think from the we need to work from the top and from the bottom. Uh, and, and then I think we're at we're at a tipping point. We're at a place where we have to take a decision, at least in this country, to say we have got to do something and we have got to become cleaner because it's going to impact generations to come, and 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 it's going to do much more financial harm to us if we don't act than if we do act. And if we do act, we in fact are may be able to to create a great deal of economic benefits for our country. But um, I think it's going to have to come from both ends. I think that that the public is going to have to start connecting the dots to the triple digit temperatures out west and the fact that we're so dependent on fossil fuels. And I'm just curious, Jigger, if you see it in the same way as a public policy issue or do you see it more as a business innovation issue? The, the big challenge is David Roberts did this fantastic piece um, this week in Grist about conservative white men and how we waste our time on trying to convert them because they're actually more educated than most in terms of climate change, but they're educating themselves against our issues. Um, and, and the real challenge I see on our side is we're constantly trying to educate people as opposed to increasing the intensity of the of the passion um, from the people who are already converted. And so you just get a whole bunch of people who like things on a Facebook page on our side of the ledger as opposed to turning out for these big um, um, you know, demonstrations on the Keystone Pipeline or the things. And so hopefully we can get the intensity level up there. Indeed. Well, speaking of old white men, I want to get their reaction to Obama's climate speech. And we'll get to that in our third segment. But first, let's talk about international trade. Late last week, the Justice Department filed criminal charges against uh, Sinovel, one of China's largest wind manufacturers, for allegedly stealing the intellectual property of Massachusetts-based AMSC. And for, for those who don't know the story, I think it's worth me giving a quick rundown of what's happened over the last couple of years. AMSC started off as a company developing superconductors for the electricity sector, but soon found a better market for building electrical systems and turbines and deploying uh, voltage control software. And that market, which it, it found, was essentially one company, Cinevel. Uh, and by 2010, after you know four or five years of building a relationship, Cinevel represented 70% of AMSC's business with contracts worth about $700 million a year. And then in March of 2011, Cinevel suddenly stopped taking orders. And as investigators soon uncovered, uh, one of AMSC's employees in Austria had been hired by Cinevel to steal and bootleg the company's software. And that employee eventually admitted guilt and was sentenced to a year in prison in Austria. Uh, but 
that wasn't much recompense for AMSC, which saw its stock drop by 90%. So here we are today. AMSC is suing Cinevell for over a billion dollars in damages in Chinese courts. The cases have languished for years. Uh, And now there's this new development. The U.S. government is filing criminal charges against the former employee uh, of AMSC, Cinevell executives, and the company Cinevell. And the Obama administration has reportedly taken this case all the way up to top Chinese officials to complain, uh, which makes it a super important case when we look at international trade issues broadly. So forgive that long description, but I think the background is important. uh, And I think the implications of this case are extremely important, considering how uh, much economic losses we're seeing from IP theft in the United States. Uh, One government report puts it at $300 billion a year in losses due to IP uh, theft, and a large majority of that comes from China. So I'm wondering what you two make of this saga uh, one of the one of many between the U.S. and China. This this comes after the long and uh, tumultuous solar trade case between the U.S. and China. Uh, Jigger, what do you make of this latest saga, and and how does it stack up in the broader list of issues that the U.S. and China are dealing with in the clean energy space? Well, I think that this case in particular is the right case at the right time. You know, with the changeover in power in China, um, the the new Chinese government is trying to figure out, you know, is it really going to be a commodity manufacturer of goods and services or does it want to get into the intellectual space and the innovation space? And I think they've clearly chosen to get in the innovation space and they're not going to be able to successfully make that transition unless U.S. companies and other companies that might work with their Chinese counterparts believe strongly that their IP will be protected. So, I mean, I I do think that China feels like it's suffering right now because it's not getting access to the best technologies and the best best goods and services because of its IP problems. So I think it'll be an interesting case to watch and one the Chinese government I don't think is taking lightly. And this relationship between Cinevell and AMSC is exactly what the Chinese government is trying to get away from. AMSC was producing a lot of the high-value products, creating high-paying jobs, and manufacturing those products overseas and and, uh, bringing them into China, whereas Cinevell was doing... Uh, some of the more lo- some of the low end manufacturing creating lower quality jobs and Chinese officials want to boost China's competitiveness in building those high value products. Unfortunately, when it came to this case and it seems many others uh, across a variety of industries, many of these Chinese companies are taking shortcuts. So we we did hear Chinese officials say publicly that they wanted to. Uh, uh, do something about IP theft in China. Uh, I do know that uh, John Kerry and President Obama and other senior White House officials have spoken to the top Chinese officials about this issue and have made this AMSC Cinevell case a central piece of their story over why China needs to do more to prosecute uh, IP theft. So I find it very fascinating that this story, which was uh, once only known in the energy sector, has now become a uh, central piece in the U.S. government's push to get China to reform uh, its its prosecutions and its 
its treatment of IP theft. Yeah. Did you see, Stephen, in the Wall Street Journal this morning, um, it was reported that Sunovel has is going to shut its units in the U.S., Belgium, Italy and Canada, supposedly completely unrelated to this. But that that's very interesting because now they're starting to see the backlash. Absolutely. And the prosecution of Sunovel could be pretty major. Um, so the the company itself could face a five year probation here in the U.S. and a fine that could equal double the losses uh, incurred by AMSC. And AMSC says it lost uh, about a billion dollars. The U.S. government says $800 million. So Cinevel's fine could be somewhere between $1.6 billion and $2 billion, uh, assuming it goes that high. But, you know, Stephen, the interesting piece of this is what the software was for, right? So the, the Chinese government spent billions of dollars building wind turbines and then realized it could not integrate those wind turbines into their grid because of the poor quality of the software they had for grid integration. So AMSC's software was essential in getting Chinese wind farms integrated into their transmission infrastructure. It's precisely the intellectual property that they needed to save themselves from billions upon billions of capital expenditures on new wind farms going wasted. Right. And so it was really an extraordinary story. Well, I'm pretty skeptical of what's going to happen over there, particularly as it relates to this case. We've seen the AMSC uh, lawsuits tied up in Chinese courts, two civil suits moved to the Supreme Court. uh, But it's pretty with the Chinese courts so connected to the Communist Party and Cinevel executives so connected to the, the Communist Party, a number of watchers that I'm talking to are skeptical that anything real will be done. And uh, in talking to some businesses about this case and the implications for IP theft in general, people are not getting a good feeling about investing in China. So we'll see what happens on the diplomatic front. That to me is a really fascinating piece. And it shows how important clean energy is from a trade perspective, because now these cases are being elevated uh, to the highest levels in both the Communist Party and the U.S. administration. So we'll see what happens there. Well, I mean, I, my one last thought is that, you know, I mean, I work with a lot of companies in the U.S., and my number one recommendation to them is not to work in China. Really? For exactly this reason. There are so many markets today where you can make a ton of money from Japan, South Africa to India that there's no reason to work in China. And do many of them heed that advice? Most of them. I mean, I I really think that this is a big deal. China is not getting access to the world's best technology, which is why they have to steal it through cybersecurity theft. Yeah, a lot of these Chinese companies are also investing here and, you know, taking, you know, purchasing some of our innovating companies here. Yeah, that's true. Well, I just find it really interesting that These clean energy trade issues are so important in international geopolitics today, and I think we're going to be talking about this a lot in the future. So speaking of China, uh, let's talk about Obama's climate plan, which I argued last time was directed toward countries like China to get them more involved in uh, international negotiations around a carbon reduction agreement. Um, And we all talked about our opinions on Obama's speech and what it meant to people in the U.S., in the environmental community, in the clean tech business, and internationally. And 
we hadn't yet heard the actual speech when we discussed the plan. So now that everyone has heard the plan itself, I just want to get our initial thoughts and then move to other organizations and politicians' reactions to the speech. Uh, Jigger, you were not terribly happy about it when you read the plan. You said that the administration wasn't talking about these issues in the right context. After actually hearing the speech, has anything changed for you? Yeah, look, I mean, I thought the speech itself was actually far better than I expected. So, I mean, from that perspective, I thought it was good. But, you know, I think that in the end, I still feel the same, right? When you look at the press coverage of this speech, it was non-existent, right? The Sunday morning talk shows in the U.S. didn't even mention climate change. Not one of them, from Fox News to ABC News to CBS, as well as Meet the Press, right? And so, so either the White House deliberately buried this story on a week that was going to be filled with gay marriage and all sorts of other issues, or the president really didn't, you know, like hype this up through his advisors to make this one of the top news stories of the week. I don't think that this is an administration burying it. The administration could put it on any week, and the U.S. press wouldn't give it the attention it deserves. I mean, you look at the inability of any moderator in any of the presidential debates to ask one single question about climate change in a year when we saw record heat, record extreme weather, a record number of Americans being impacted by uh, those elements. And I think this is more a media issue and less an administration burying the story issue. Catherine, what about you? Did you like the tone of the speech? Did you think it hit the right notes? And did it complement the plan and do what the president is trying to do? Yeah, it was great. It's a great speech. Um, and it was so rational. It was like, you know, look, these are the reasons we're doing this. This is what we have to do. Obviously, Congress isn't going to do it. So I'm going to do whatever I can because there's a moral imperative. And I thought he laid out the case really rationally the way he does. Um, and yet he also had some fire in his belly, which was really important. And of course, he was mopping his brow the entire time because it was so hot. So uh, it was I thought it was a great speech. I thought that the conservative reaction, uh, they, they just don't have anything. You know, the most they could say was this is a backdoor energy tax. I mean, you know, they just they had nothing to combat this and to come back with because they don't have a plan. They don't have anything, any alternative to what we obviously have to do. I think that's right. And Republicans are completely flummoxed on what to do about this. And if they want to fight it, the only way they can do that is through the Congressional Review Act, which, you know, was passed in the mid 90s and allows Congress to overrule a regulation if it's deemed bad for for business. But that takes a lot uh, of agreement and Democrats won't go along with it. And they probably Republicans probably won't get the vote to uh, to prevent a presidential veto. So the Republicans really don't have any way to fight this. And this is exactly what the administration said it was going to do. Right. But the administration was really pissed off this week. Right. I mean, I heard an earful from several folks who just said, look, you guys in the environmental community didn't have our back. Right. The, the administration went out on a limb to say that we're no longer going to support coal at the Export Import Bank, at the World Bank and other places. And they didn't feel like, you know, that, that I guess we said enough nice things about them. Um, and so I think we're, we're in this weird place where the, the administration thinks that it's naked on this issue, that its supporters really didn't have its back uh, this week. And at the same time, I think that the opposition to all these rules are, you know, quite 
um, quite well organized. And so I don't think the EPA rules are going to get rolled back. I think they're going to be moved forward. But this, um, when you think about how much coordination work has happened to get Japan to be number one in the world in solar deployment this year, or some of the other progress that's been made around the world, um, we're just not seeing that level of coordination on the deployment of clean tech in the U.S. Now, who are you talking to from the administration who is upset about that? I, I, I feel like the environmental community completely rallied around the speech and, and backed him up on almost every issue that you outlined. Yeah, but I think that the the, the tagline in the end for most of the um, most of the press articles that came out was that you know that that this was going to you know on on net net be negative even though you and I both know this is going to be positive. It's going to be positive for the health impacts of Americans. It's going to be positive for job creation in the U.S. It's going to be positive for our ecosystems. But I think that the tagline in most cases was this was going to be negative in people's congressional districts. And I think that the the only thing that Republicans have now to fight this is to put put together some messaging votes so in upcoming elections, they can campaign against vulnerable Democrats, particularly in the South, in coal-dependent states, uh, so they can you know, vote Democrats out of office. That seems to be one of the only things that Republicans can do to fight politically against this. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that how that pans out, because the South is also getting hit with some pretty serious weather stuff. And, and there are a lot of water issues. Um, a lot of those folks are coming on board with energy efficiency measures, energy efficiency policy recommendations. I don't know. I see a lot of buzz on the Hill about, you know, a carbon tax or a cap and dividend. We just another piece of news that happened last week was. Congressman, long-term Congressman Ed Markey from Massachusetts was elected to the Senate in a special election, and uh, he is an absolute climate champion. Uh, you know, he'll be in the Senate trying to do the same thing that he tried to do in the House, which was to pass a cap and trade bill. So he he's going to be working with the you know EPW and other committees to try to get things get things through the Senate. And I'm hearing a lot more buzz about you know carbon cap and trade whatever that whatever the legislation is i think the president showing the leadership will give a lot of people the cover to start doing this in congress and we'll see how far it gets but at least there's a lot more buzz now but this just goes back to the argument that i made a couple shows ago i just can't see anything moving through the house and although we might have more support for it in the senate it just seems like there there's so much of a roadblock in the House that nothing substantive could get through. You look at uh, Americans for Prosperity, uh, which has made a number of leading Republicans sign a pledge not to uh, commit to a carbon tax or cap and trade. This is a a powerful pledge, similar to Grover Norquist's anti-tax pledge, uh, that's really providing a major roadblock for any sort of action in the House. And I just don't see... Uh, any movement going forward. Yeah, I think you got to do the same thing on the other side. You you got to vilify the the dirty industries. You have to make them like the tobacco companies. You need to be you need to make people take a pledge that says I'm not going to kill my planet, you know, and start messaging around that. Well, along with environmental groups maybe not having the right messaging, the coal industry is pushing back pretty hard as well. Uh one of the leading coal lobbies said that it was going to throughout July and August, host rallies, 
uh, put up a lot of digital and print ads pushing back against Obama's climate policy uh, and and trying to develop this digital classroom around the importance of coal in our electricity system. So a pretty wide-ranging pushback there from the coal lobby. Um, But what's interesting is that companies on the ground that are heavily coal-dependent are saying something different. And I saw that American Electric Power CEO said in the press, give us enough time and we'll be able to meet any regulations. And they've said that about EPA regulations in the past. And if these regulations are rolled out in a smart way, in a timely way, with enough information, you know, many of these companies on the ground are able to put the technologies in place to meet the regulations. And they do it and and either do not lose jobs or actually create net jobs because of the installation of the scrubbers and, and manufacturing jobs and so forth. And that's what I thought was most effective in Obama's speech. He laid out the historical context of the industry fighting against government regulations for better pollution controls. And each time the industry said that the sky was falling and that it would destroy American jobs, and each time they were wrong. And so by putting it in that historical context, I think that you can win the messaging battle every time. And it's interesting to me that some companies on the ground are sort of backing that up by saying, hey, if we have enough time, we can actually meet these regulations. Yeah, and I mean the car companies did it with seatbelts. It's you know, this. This is what happens. But but they are going to have to change. Yeah. Well, so but but in, but I just think it's important to note that at the net net end of the day, right? Obama gave all these historical references, but then didn't give us a new one to to latch on to. Sure, he talked about the fact that he was directing EPA to to basically make coal difficult to do. But then he sort of offered up natural gas as a solution. And my sense is, is that for those of us who care deeply about climate change, we all know that natural gas is not a solution to, to climate change in this country. And frankly, natural gas had um, you know, less than a majority of the emissions reductions from the last five years came from natural gas. Most of it came from efficiency and renewables. But that's not the story. And so I just think that he's got to give us something inspirational and aspirational to fight for. Otherwise, you're not going to see the money people on the clean tech side get excited about this speech. I think that there's a difference here. The money people do understand that there's an opportunity here. What the president did fail to do, though, and and I do agree with you on this, is to paint that alternative vision in a coherent way. I think he started to do that, and I think he talked about the benefits of renewables and progress that had been made already. But I think what all three of us understand and people out there who are in the clean tech business understand is that things are progressing a lot faster than anyone projected. And again, this goes back to our initial conversation about IEA projections. And the president sort of fails to talk about the on the ground reality in renewables and efficiency today and paints it as a future opportunity mixed in with natural gas as a bridge fuel. And that to me is one of the biggest issues I had with the speech. And I definitely agree with you on that jigger. So I think that there's an opportunity for the president to come back around and talk about the business opportunity underway today and how deployment has completely surpassed expectations and is ready to solve the, pro- the, the challenge today. Um, 
He did do that in talking about the climate problem. He once only talked about climate as a generational problem and something that was far out for our kids and is now starting to talk about extreme weather and current issues and frame climate change as a problem today. So that can be done in clean energy as well. Okay, so I'll use that as a way to transition into our last segment and we'll tell everybody something that they don't know. I will go ahead with mine because it deals with Obama's climate speech. I couldn't believe what I heard when he finished off his speech and he told people to divest. He said, invest, divest, remind folks there's no contradiction between a sound environment and strong economic growth. And in the last year, we've seen this fossil fuel divestment campaign bubble up and start to make its way into universities, now 300 schools and universities, into churches, into municipal governments. And to have the president call for divestment was pretty huge. And I think a lot of folks in the environmental community were happy about that and very surprised. So I thought that that was really interesting as I listened to the president's speech. Jigger, how about you? Well, you know, I think this week the president's in Africa and is, is uh, announced a $7 billion pledge to help uh, build the electricity sector in Africa. Um, one of the projects he announced in Tanzania uh, today was uh, a project that I've been supporting um, um, using gasified biomass, which is uh, General Electric's technology. But I, you know, I I um, think that this real push uh, for U.S. leadership in Africa is pretty interesting because, as you may or may not know, I mean, China has been really leading infrastructure investment into Africa for the past five years, and it's good to see the U.S. actually. Um, Hitting back, and I think it'll mean that there'll be a lot more clean energy going into Africa. And Catherine, what do you have for us this week? Uh, since I'm always focused on Congress, here's something that also didn't make the news because of the week last week that we had, which is Jan Schakowsky from Illinois introduced a permanent tax credit for wind, geothermal, hydro, and marine power that would extend you know, our production tax credit for all of those technologies permanently. But the cool thing is that it's revenue positive. It eliminates um, all kinds of drilling and uh, other oil and gas you know, depletion credits. Credits, um, and then gives a little bit more back to Treasury. So I thought it was cool that somebody was out there doing something positive at the same time um, in Congress at the same time that the president was saying Congress isn't actually going to do anything. Chances for that actually moving forward? Oh, not. But it's something we can we can rally around and speak to, and it gives you sort of the left flank that you need. Absolutely. Well, you can read about all these stories that we covered on the podcast at our site, greentechmedia.com. We'll provide links there for your reference. And don't forget, we are now available on iTunes. So subscribe to us there. And don't forget to rate the show and leave your comments. Also, to use other podcast listening tools, you can find our RSS feed on the podcast page as well. Again, greentechmedia.com. And finally, if you have any story ideas for the Energy Gang, you can send them over to me. My email address is Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. Catherine Hamilton, always a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely my pleasure. Jager Shaw, always a pleasure as well. Talk to you soon. Absolutely. Glad to have you on my side on the Obama speech. <laughs> we'll see if it changes next week. <laughs> With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. We are the Energy Gang. We look forward to having you with us next week. Happy Fourth of July to our American listeners. 